Hello, I'm Emma Rice, the Artistic Director of Wise Children, and you're listening to Wise Children's Lockdown. Our lockdown project is about us finding ways of staying close to each other. On this show, I call up an old friend, play some records, and most importantly, get to chat and reminisce. Come and join us for Tea and Biscuits. and welcome to Wise Children's Lockdown Tea and Biscuits. And today I am talking with my dear friend, Ankur Baal. Hi. Hi, Emma. First thing I have to ask you is, um, what is your virtual or real biscuit of choice today? Um, I'm eating pistachio. Oh, fancy, yeah. I like it. And I've like broken all of the rules of tea and biscuits to begin with. That is looks delicious can you can you describe your large glass of wine to me what is it it's a gabby oh it's gabby and it feels like the right weather to drink white wine <laughs> well cheers dear friend <laughs> my love how's it going tell me about your lockdown paint me a picture of where you are and how it's going so i am in southeast london in a place called Plumstead where uh, my partner Wayne and I have just moved into our new home. We moved in just before lockdown. And so we are now spending most of lockdown doing our jobs remotely from wherever it was meant to be from before and slowly tearing the house apart. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. What you can't see, for those of you who are listening, is I'm sitting in a room where we've stripped all of the walls of wallpaper so it looks like this like boho chic shortage cafe, but that's not what it's meant to look like. It will look fabulous at some point. Oh, but you yeah. did so well to get in before the lockdown. So lucky in a lot of ways. And so lucky to have a really tangible project yeah. working on in this time. Yeah, scraping wallpaper. You can just blitz it, can't you? And like unveiling brick like fireplaces. Oh. And, like, all of that stuff. We've built tool sheds from scratch. Oh, I'm jealous. Like satisfying, delightful work. Oh, and um, welcome to your the- home. Welcome to your new home. It's fantastic. And you've worked really hard to get this place. Well done. No, I'm really pleased. And also, I mean, for those of us, who, for, for those of you listening who know me or Emma, I, I don't think I would ever be described as the butchest of types. But when you see me <laughs> in, my, <laughs> in my shorts with a sledgehammer, <laughs> I, I think I put all of you, I would surprise everyone. I want to see that. I want a really? selfie next time, please. Or maybe a little video. Maybe get Wayne to do a little video. I want to see that so much. We'll create a gift. Oh. Well, listen, this is a chance for me to catch up with friends, um, but also reminisce a little bit. And I was thinking about the first time I feel I met you, but we actually didn't was when I saw you in To Be Straight With You at the National Theatre. The amazing show, DVH show, dance show, um, by director and choreographer Lloyd Newson. And it was a devastatingly hard-hitting piece. Um, Really, really affecting, really tough on the soul, deep, dark issues. And you came on and you were just as deep and just as profound and just as hard-hitting, but you had a lightness of spirit that sh- 
shot through that piece like an arrow, like a golden arrow. And you skipped and you told this story. And and it was as if with your skipping, you gave us hope in a piece that had very little hope. And I can remember thinking, I love him. I want to know him and I want to work with him. So that's the moment when I feel you came into my life. Oh, wow. I mean, that's sort of taken me aback a bit. I, it feels like such a long time ago. That would have been, I think, 2008. Yeah, easily, easily. Yeah, so more than a more than a decade ago. And it, it's interesting. It was when I started my career in this country. It was my first job out of my apprenticeship. And I wanted to work for Deviate for such a long time. And it was a piece that was very important to me because specifically what I was doing was playing a lot of South Asian gay characters um, who were telling these harrowing stories of um, suffering homophobia and abuse within their religious communities. And this, this, this character that you're talking about, it's a verbatim piece, so he's a real dude. And he, he was 15 when he was stabbed by his father and left for dead for being gay in the alley behind his family's house. And he managed to come out of that with this hope and optimism for the world. And I, I, he, I, it was such an honor to play him. And as an American, my first big job playing this boy from Hull, <laughs> a place I've never been to in an accent I barely understood. And yeah, we got to, we got to travel the world, but also just tell these stories that were really important and meaningful. and. I'm so honoured that you loved it. <laughs> oh, I certainly did. And as I say, your personality just shone through. But we don't, I don't want to get bogged down in it, but you're such an interesting man for many reasons. But so I met you as a dancer, but that's not... Tell, tell me a little bit about your upbringing in America and your training, because this blows my mind. So <laughs> um, I'll try and keep it short. So I grew up in California. Um, my parents worked for the computer industry, so I grew up in the Silicon Valley. I went to university to study journalism and got a, got degrees in, in broadcast journalism. I was meant to be a TV news reporter and worked as that for a little while in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, and But I'd grown up dancing. I'd grown up studying Paradhanatyam, South Indian classical dance, and I'd grown up skipping rope. I was on the US national rope skipping team. Something that I only discovered very, very recently. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew there even was such a thing as a national rope skipping team? There is, and I was on it. Um, and so uh, after university and after some apprenticeships as a journalist, I realized I wanted to travel the world and I wanted to go back to dance. And so that brought me to Europe. I went to ballet school, went to contemporary dance school here, and I started working as a dancer at that time. Um, and then because of sort of working for Deviate and other physical theater companies, and using a lot of text, it sort of opened up the possibility of working as an actor. And so I got to work as an actor, most importantly with you, and that's where <laughs> our paths crossed. And then other things have happened since, but yeah, that's kind of where where you and I met. It's amazing, you're such a renaissance man, and I think it's your, um, it's your superpower and your curse, because <laughs> life spreads you a bit thin, doesn't it? <laughs> That's how I feel, you know, I mean, I'm, anyway, we'll get onto that later, but there's times when I can't work with you when I would like to, because <laughs> you have other important things to do. But anyway, dancer, actor, journalist, and many other things. Um, talk to me about your first music choice and why. 
okay. So the first one, I, I found this really stressful, Emma, but you know that because I tend to overthink in general. So um, I found it stressful because I was like, oh my goodness, Emma sent me this like Desert Island Discs task. And I'm gonna like, the, 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 the listeners will judge me for being uncultured or something. And then I was like, okay, let's just simplify it and pick three pieces of music that kind of mark the moments of your journey with Emma Rice. And so the first one is a song called Musafir Humiado, and it's from a Hindi film called Pariche, um, a Bollywood film from 1972, uh, sung by Kishore Kumar, who's a legend, written by the famous R.D. Berman. And the lyrics are Musafir Humiado, which means I'm a traveler. And it's basically a song about being someone who is, who travels the world, who doesn't have a home, who travels on the wind. And as the son of immigrants, as an immigrant to this country myself, and as a traveling player for a lot of my career, it has always resonated with me. This song played in my house all the time. My father loved it. Um, and it reminded me of our first job together, which was The Empress, mm -hmm. in which I got to play Gandhi and use my skills as a Bharatanatyam dancer, but tell a really profoundly important Indian story and an Indian story in Britain of travelers. And so that's why I picked this song. Hey 
तुझे चलते जाना है बस चलते जाना मुसाफिर हूँ यारो ना घर है ना ठिकाना मुझे चलते जाना है बस चलते Oh, I love it. It's got a little bit of Little House on the Prairie about it as well, hasn't it? Funnily enough, it's been, they made it, it's based on an old Indian story, but also it's sort of, they took inspiration from the sound of music. (laughs) You can hear that. I love it. It's like a proper sort of cheeky fusion, isn't it? Really, and and so romantic as well. In the background. Love it. (laughs) So, yeah, we met... um, at, well, we didn't met. We started. We started working together on a show called The Empress, written mm. by Tanika Gupta, which was at the Swan. In Tanika Gupta. Oh, hell yes! Um, which was on at the Swan in Stratford upon Avon, um, and it was a magic time. I mean, for me, it was the continuation of a journey that I'd started on Vavar Girls with Tanika um, and Sadler's Wells. Um, and and the begin, which was the beginning of my love affair with India and Indian culture and Indian music and my Indian friends now. So, um, but the Empress was a fantastic step on that journey and a piece that I'm incredibly proud of. Although it slightly fell between the gap, didn't it? It was between Michael Boyd's tenure, Michael had commissioned it, and Greg coming in. So we we felt a little bit lost, didn't we, at the time? I remember. But maybe you always do. Maybe that's a permanent state of the artist. I mean, I don't know how. It's sort of, I remember listening to Mark Antelitz chat with you the other week. And it kind of felt like what happened with Romantic, Anon- Romantic Anonymous, where you have a long, for us, at least on The Empress, we had a longer run. We had, a, sorry, a longer rehearsal period than run. Mm. And that's always an odd scenario for something that's one so big budget, so high profile, and so much work goes into Yeah. I think we all went into it assuming it would have another life and then it didn't. And I think that's, if you know you have a three week run and you've rehearsed for six weeks, then you just kind of get on with it. But I think we all instinctively knew and felt like it should have had a longer life. And it should. I mean, I gosh, maybe we'll return to it one day. But there was also a complication because it was the story of Queen Victoria and her servant, Abdul Karim, which was being made into the movie that now we've all seen. So there was a few other complications which have now as ever time sort of laps over those things gently don't they and they all they what seems very important a long time ago is less important now but I loved that show I loved the mixture of cultures and my particular favorite bit which you hadn't you weren't there as choreographer but you're such a sort of um vibrant person that we started talking about it and really early on you said well I I I'm trained in classical Indian dance, Bharatanatyam. I could teach you some steps. And I was like, hell yeah, let's do that. And you started teaching the whole group this beautiful, um, very formal Indian dance, which then we blended throughout the show. And at the end, I had sort of white women in crinolines doing Bharatanatyam and fusing Indian classical music with Forgive Our Foolish Ways, which was my granny's favourite hymn. And... It was so, so beautiful. 
But I think it's so emblematic as well of your process, right? Like we started that as let's just do warm ups. We'll do warm ups of Indian classical dance because that's part of how we all get a little bit of a sense of where we are. And that then blossomed into something else. And there's a, such an, for, for people who haven't worked with you in the past, I think one of the most surprising things that you realize the first time of working with you is that so much is possible so long as you're open mm-hmm. to offering. Um, and I think that's one of those things. It was just an offering that became quite important to the production in the end. Hugely important. Absolutely the, the, the absolute backbone of it, sort of mixing the formality of both cultures. That's what I loved, is it wasn't, is it was really matching them for for profound artistic historical worth. You you brought yeah. that into the room and it was sensational. Sensational. And the Victorian era being such a formal period mm-hmm. in many ways, I think that it felt you just felt it in the room, didn't you? It just yeah. felt right to offer that. And 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 Tanika was brilliant as well at being like, yeah, let's go, let's do let's do what we want to do with this script. You know, it, it, it can I think for a writer, it can be quite tough bringing a, a, an offering into a room that you've worked so hard on and then watching actors just play with it. And I think, uh, yeah, it was it was a really magical opening process. And I also remember, you not only did you play Gandhi, you played um, Sing. Do you remember Sing? Tiny, one, I think it had something like three lines. And I love you for this. I was thinking, oh, we'll just get this scene or we'll be just a quick in and out, say two lines and off. And you sprang in and you leapt onto the table in one leap. It was like a gazelle and we all gasped and you were so physical. You were like a coiled spring. And I thought, that's my guy because... You, you have a, a burning creativity and a gentle ambition because you were like, well, I'm not going to just come on and say two lines, am I? <laughs> you know, what's really interesting about that is I, so in the season before that, at the, I had been at the RSC the season before where I'd done three plays, um, Tempest, Twelfth Night and The Comedy of Errors. And in Twelfth Night, my only line was, will you go hunt my lord? Um, I played Curio. And then <laughs> in The Tempest, I didn't speak. <laughs> and then in Comedy of Errors, I was the messenger who has something like four or six lines. And basically, I was brought on to be a physical performer. And then I understudied tons of leads. And it was a fantastic season. But I also realized that if you've only got this much time on stage, you've got to do something with it. <laughs> um, and I think that, that treatment of Sing was probably a layover of a very, very long season at the RSC playing small parts. Well, I love it. You know, one of the one of the things I often say to actors is make me an offer. Because mm. I don't know, you know, I'm nothing. If it's just in my head, I already know what's in my head and what's in my body. I want to see what's in everybody else's heads. And you just like burst in and oh, I, I live for moments like that. And I yeah. cherish um. it. Um, let's move on to your mm. next track. Tell me why. So the next one is Beyonce. Yes. Um, it's Drunk in Love because it's one of my favorite Beyonce tracks. And I know I probably should have picked something off Lemonade, but this one's, I love it. And I, I also picked it because um, my partner and I went to a Beyonce concert and uh, early in our relationship. And <laughs> we were standing there singing to all the tracks and dancing around. And this was in Cardiff and it was not full. 
It was before she'd sort of busted out as a big solo artist. It was just after Destiny's Child. And we were dancing around and then she pointed at my partner Wayne and she's like, I see you. And she said in the yellow shirt, he was the only one around in the yellow shirt. So we, so we know she saw him. And, uh, and it, it, she was extraordinary. And she connected with us as humans in that space in such a special way. And it reminded me not only of one dream for a specific reason related to Beyonce on Dream, but also what we tried to do on Midsummer Night's Dream at the Globe, which was really connect human to human, especially with the humans in the yard. Um, and then obviously you can share why Beyonce is important to Midsummer Night's Dream uh, when you want to. I've been drinking, I've been drinking. I get filthy when that liquor get it to me. I've been thinking, I've been thinking. Why can't I keep my fingers off it, baby? I want you, nah, nah. Why can't I keep my fingers off it, baby? I want you, nah, nah. Cigars on ice, cigars on ice. Feeling like an animal with these cameras all in my grill Flashing lights, flashing lights You got me pity, 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 baby I want you, nah, nah Can't keep your eyes off my pity, daddy I want you, nah, nah Drunk in love, I want you We woke up in the kitchen saying hi Stop. 
humble all in the house Time to back up all of that mouth That you had all in the car Talk about you the baddest bitch thus far Talk about you be reppin' that third I wanna see all the shit that I heard No, I slink, clink, Eastwood Hope you can handle this curve Uh, score play in a foyer Fucked up my Warhol Slint your panties right to the side Ain't got the time to take jaws off on sight Catch a charge, I might Beat the box up like Mike In 97, I bite I'm Ike Turn up, turn up, baby, no, I don't play Now eat the cake, anime, said eat the cake Anime, I'm nice For y'all to reach these heights You gon' need G3 Four, five, six flights, sleep tight We sex again in the morning Your breakfast is my breakfast We gon' in, we be all night So let's talk about Dream before we go back to Beyonce. Yeah. I had got the job at the Globe, but I was the I can't remember I was the artistic director designate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I was in my office in the car park, which is where I planned my first season, and I knew I was going to do a Midsummer Night's Dream, although it wasn't my first choice originally, um, and. Uh, for various boring reasons I did think why am I resisting this Emma you know you're sort of on some level you have to do a dream one day so what is your issue with it and I realised very quickly I had only one issue with Midsummer Night's Dream which is I don't think the character of Helena is okay I don't want to find a female actor and put those words in her mouth. I don't want her to say, treat me as a dog. I don't want to say, beat me, do what you will with me. I I find, and then for her to marry the guy. I just thought, I have a really deep issue with this. And it immediately came to me. The question is, why does she still love Demetrius? And why does Demetrius not love her if we're expected to be happy when they get together at the end and it dawned on me well what if this is a gay relationship with his, what if this is two men one of them denying his homosexuality and the other one desperate in love and desperate for the truth that they had once experienced but I was scared and and with hindsight I was quite right to be scared because I, I thought this might be look like it was an imposition look like it was too clever and I called you up and I said, Anka, will you come and talk to me about an idea? And we sat in my office in that car park and we talked about it. Tell me what your memory of that time is. That was, it was extraordinary. 
Wait, but I want to know, what were you thinking of doing if it wasn't going to be Midsummer Night's Dream? I was going to do Shrew. And I was actually going to do and uh, looking at a sort of slightly Asian version of Shrew and got scared of that as well. But I was interested in that. Ooh, we should make Asian Shrew anyway. Mm. But, <laughs> um, so I remember getting a call from you and... Let's not lie, you know, you, you talk about my quiet ambition. I actually think my ambition's much bigger than quiet. And, uh, <laughs> You're very you know, noisy ambition. <laughs> very generous to me. Um, but uh, it was a call that I was hoping would come. <laughs> I was like, Emma Rice is now the artistic director at the Globe. I'm hoping I'm getting a call. And, um, and you called. And so I very diligently read the play and all the rest. And it was, without a doubt, the best pre-rehearsal meeting I've ever had in my entire career. And it, it wasn't an audition, right? It was no. it kind of like old collaborators getting together, but it was very clear you had you had questions to solve as, as a creative. And we we for any actors who are listening, you know, you, you go in and you chat for 10 minutes about a part and you leave. This was two hours of us sitting around a table reading, discussing, drinking tea, testing it. And it was one of the most satisfying experiences as a performer to be able to go, here's an artist who trusts me to bring something to the table. A director who's not auditioning me, who's inviting me to question an artistic thesis. And also, I, I consider myself to be a Shakespearean, and so I love to play with Shakespeare, and I love to play in that way. And, oh, Emma, it was magical. I wish more people could have just been in that meeting just to, it would have destroyed the meeting if there were more people there, but to, to experience what we, what, what I treasure so much about that moment. I, I treasure it too, and I, but I, the, of the many things, the, the intimacy and the intellect, and the care that that we we held in our hands in that meeting. But what was extraordinary was going through the text and realising that not a line needed to change. Not a line. And I think in the end we only changed lady to lover mm-hmm. for gender. And I think there was one couplet about a, uh, in the, a heart in the wood or something. But it just fell out. The idea just fell out of us and fell out of the play. And I, yeah. and again, I just sort of thought this Shakespeare guy is is amazing because the the malleability of what he wrote, we didn't mm. impose the idea. We really didn't. The idea just, and in fact, we weren't criticised for it because it worked. And what's interesting is I've had people come up to me now, you know, all these years later, going, I study this now as a gender studies piece on Shakespeare, as a real, like there are academics who are looking at this work and we never meant to make this an academic exercise. This was a very human exercise for us and a very personal exercise for both of us. And and interestingly, people are now referring to this work as an important moment in this conversation around gender and Shakespeare, which for us was very instinctive in some ways. And interestingly, the only thing that, I left that meeting going, yeah, can work and see what Emma says. We're not going to have to change a lot. It, it's fine. It makes complete sense to me as a gay man telling this story. I've had that relationship before. I'm, I know what that is. I've been Demetrius in that relationship before. You know, early out in my coming, early in my coming out journey. But I think what's interesting 
is I didn't necessarily buy. You knew from the minute you knew in that meeting you wanted to call him Helenus,、mm-hmm. and I thought we didn't have to change the name. I thought we could call him Helena, and in the end, Helenus was the right choice. I hope so. There's well, just the choices me, you I, make. Yeah, I, I, I felt I Helena was a girl's name, and I felt that I couldn't get beyond. I'd be asking questions constantly.、Mm. But I'm so proud of it, and I could, the other thing is I couldn't believe it. As I was, I can remember sort of almost gasping with excitement, thinking, "Why the hell hasn't this been done before? Because it's so right, it's so right." And you can—that's when you feel the adrenaline go and your breath rise, and you think we're really onto something really special. And that continued throughout the whole dream journey, all the way through Pride, the way through those London just flocked to celebrate that gay kiss at the end. Oh my goodness! The, the the wonderful diverse cast we had. It felt like it was such a moment for a multicultural, open-hearted, tolerant London, and I will take that with me to my dying day. No, I mean it was such a special time. It's literally one of the happiest moments in my entire working and human life.、Um, I will treasure it forever. But also, do you remember that summer was the Was when there was the shootings at the gay club in Florida. Oh, yes. And do you remember that? Oh, gosh, I've gone all um <laughs> goose pimply. Um, so I I wanted it to be very much of today. I wanted it to be、um, what I thought was very much genuinely original practice, which is we were in modern clothes and it was today. And then the. Fairies were Elizabethan, so I felt like we were absolutely spanning the two arms of original practice, Elizabethan and modern day. And when the audience came in, I usually play some music. How do you warm the space? What's the incoming music? And everything I thought of felt wrong. And in the end, I said, "We've got to not editorialise it because it's today. It needs to be live." And We chose to play Radio Two live every day, which meant sometimes people are going, "Why are you playing that dreadful music?" And I'd say, "Because it's now. It's what's happening today." And、um, I think Nanda used to read today's Metro, didn't she? So the, the clues were、um, that it was of today. And that day it was a Sunday because we started at one, not two, and we were slightly late. And the news hit, and it was live, and it was about the shooting at the gay club. And I can remember thinking. This is so important. What we're doing is so important. And not to overemphasize it, but I think at the same time it felt. I, I, I was. I think a lot of us were heartbroken, right? But by, by what we what, what we heard was happening and the news that was coming out. But also, it was incredibly powerful to tell that story in that moment in the globe. Which is one of the most, as you describe it, democratic spaces in theatre, and it, yeah, it, I, yeah, there are so many things about Midsummer Night's Dream that are really special to me, but there were also so many moments in that time that reminded us that what we were doing was important for now, and、mm-hmm. was important for why we were doing Shakespeare now. And why we were telling these stories now, and I think we will agree to disagree with half of the global Shakespeareans on how to play <laughs> Shakespeare, I suppose. But for what I love about Shakespeare and what I care about, 
doing when I do Shakespeare, we hit the nail on the head. Here's something to remind you. You're going to hear Katie Owen, Ed Derrington, Shuti Gatwa, Ankur Bal, and Anjana Vassan. lighter healed than I. I. I followed fast, but faster he did fly, that fallen am I in dark, uneven way, and here will rest me. Oh, come, thou gentle day, for if but once thou show me thy grey light, I'll find Demetrius and revenge this spite. <gasps> Thou runs before me, shifting every place, and dares not stand nor look me in the face. Where art thou now? Come hither, I am here. Nay, then, thou mockst me. Thou shalt buy this dear if ever I thy face by daylight see. Now go thy way. Faintness constraineth me to measure up my length on this cold bed. By day's approach, looks to be visited. Oh, weary night. Oh, long and tedious night. Abates thy hours. Shine comforts from the east, that I may back to London by daylight from these that my poor company detest. And sleep, that sometimes shuts up sorrow's eye. Steal me a while from mine own company. Yet but three. Three plus one makes up four. Here she comes, cursed and sad. Cupid is a knavish lad, thus to make poor females mad. Never so weary, never so in war, bedabbled with the dew and torn with briars. I can no further crawl, no further go. My legs can keep no pace with my desires. Here will I rest me till the break of day. Heavens shield Lysander if they mean a fray.
It's amazing hearing it again, isn't it? And hearing the audience gasping. But also, um, I would say this, wouldn't I? But people talked so much about the technology and all of that stuff, which was immaterial to the work we made. What you hear in that is how serious it was, the alchemy we created and uh, the bravery of the production. And I have such artistic pride in what we created. I had forgotten that soundtrack. The the score behind it, it was it created such a beautiful tension and do you remember in the rehearsal room and we were like okay these guys are running through the woods and they're becoming more and more tired more and more ravaged by the situation but we need this to happen in this space and we need it to happen like this and you had a moment where you're like, okay, I want you guys to run in circles and then I want you to stop, take a deep breath in and do some kind of role at these moments. And then you had four actors in front of you going, really? <laughs> and you said, I'm 90% sure this isn't gonna get on stage, but I have to see it. So can you guys lead? And it was like an evening rehearsal. And we were like, okay, fine. And lo and behold, that was the answer. It worked. That was a magic. That was one of those rare evening rehearsals where it just works again. And you just have to have those moments. Don't get complicated. Don't question it. Just go, wow, we just we just found something. The genius of Etta Murphy. Oh, yes. Big shout out to Et. Let's move on. Let's go on to Wise Children. When I started my new company, Post Globe, you were a great friend to me um, throughout the whole of the Globe debacle. <laughs> whatever we call it. But when I came out in Wise Children and I was looking for a company that represented my past and my present and my future, you were right at the top of my list. And there you were as my Melchior Hazard. (laughs) I'm going to go straight in. Let's play a little bit from Wise Children to take us there. cast you as a great Shakespearean, a great thespian. I thought it was going to play to all your uh, theatrical strengths, but also a bad guy. He, he wasn't a very impressive man, was he? Talk to me a bit about your journey with Wise Children. So, <sighs> interestingly, I think what had happened to me between Midsummer Night's Dream and Wise Children is I had left performing. And I had worked as a business consultant um, and gone to like very serious business. And then you reached out and were like, 
I'm starting a company and I want to do this thing. And when I heard that, I basically told them I was leaving <laughs> and came and joined you. Um, and so it was such a marvelous, magical time. But yes, Melchior is an incredibly difficult character, right? In that you can understand where he's coming from. And in so many ways, Melchior Hazard's ambition is completely aligned to mine, right? Like great actors, great performers, great storytellers, great Shakespeareans. And so I really resonated with him. But at the same time, he's a bit of a nasty piece of work. Well, he's he's selfish in a way that I would say you're not. <laughs> that you may share ambitious and um, ambitions and talents, um, but not the the fierce selfishness that he had. But you did, I, I you know I it was great casting from me. Can I say <laughs> because you didn't hate him? You know you understood the guy that. Um, spoke Shakespeare as he was made homeless as a child. You know, he, you understood that, the poet in him, didn't you? I think that's the thing, right, as well, like, that it's not... I think I did feel that. There were moments in the rehearsal room that, that became a little bit awkward because I would defend him so fiercely and I would say slightly offensive things to other characters, to other actors and characters, trying to be like, look, I don't think you understand where he's coming from. And... <laughs> One of the things about that is one Angela Carter wrote an incredibly beautiful and complex character mm-hmm. who has multiple sides. So he's neither, he is not just like a full villain, but he's also not completely forgivable, right? And I think there there's a complexity to him that, that is nice. But yes, I did defend him and I did I did understand him. Well, that's also the actor's job, isn't it? To love your own character, to understand your own character. Also a devised process, right? Yeah. For why that character should have its space in the story you're telling. Right? It's not my job in the room to be able to edit it down. My job is to go, this is the character and this is why this character is important. Here's how we tell his or her story. Let's do that. His, her, their story. But let's do that. And then it's your job to go whether or not that's part of the full narrative or not. And it's one of the reasons I love being an actor, because I can just fully dive in and be like, here, Emma, is the full (laughs) round of possibility you rein it in. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Um, So one of the reasons that, no, not one, well, one of the reasons I set up Wise Children was obviously to make the work that I cared about with the people that I love. Um, But I also wanted to make a touring theatre company that really understood and accepted what it's like to tour, understood how hard it is, also how marvellous it can be, but took seriously how, as a company, we could make that better. Now, my Wise Children company was full of strikers, to use the football analogy, which means they're all bloody brilliant, but can also be a bit tricky at times. And (laughs) I can remember saying to you all at one point, right, how are we going to make this touring thing work? How are we? And everybody's a little bit grumpy, a little bit sort of independent. But you guys got together and we wrote a manifesto and you decided as a team that you would take it in turns to share skills with each other because it was a very highly skilled company um, and run warm-ups, which became this sort of 
amazing sort of thing, this amazing tradition. So I've chosen a piece for you to remind you of the warm-ups that you would leave, the Bangra warm-ups that you would teach us hilariously to attempt. And I'm afraid I can't pronounce it, but we think we've found it on Shazam and it translates as Beware the Boys.
was um, when I stepped in to cover Etta for a couple of weeks. That was my most joyful bit was doing the different warm-ups. And your Bangra one was my absolute favourite. I mean, the warm-ups are great. And, and you know, Bangra is a good, a good way to warm yourself up. But also remember, we used Bangra in the curtain call on Dream. Yes. And it was one of those moments that the audiences just went mad for and loved. Um, but yeah. I, well, it's folk, isn't it? Which is what works at the Globe. You know, there's a great deep folk where we all get it. We all feel it. It's like, you know, it's powerful stuff. Proper Punjabi lad. I'm very proud to pick up Yeah, ensemble, I mean. So happy to do um, Talk to me about your last choice, which I'm so delighted you've made. <laughs> so um, I'm uh, I'm a, a, I was born in the eighties, and I'm a kid of the eighties, very much so. And um, this song was one of those songs that I would just like sing in my house all the time. And also in the eighties, when my my family moved from Chicago to California, um, and we drove, and. I remember it being on the radio a lot during that road trip. I was quite young, but it was on. And yeah, I fancied the lead singer. <laughs> um, like everything about it. And it's infinitely catchy and will make you smile. So it's um, Wham, Wake Me Up Before You Go Go. And before we play it, we have to also say the place it has in our hearts because at the end of Wise Children, um, I wanted everybody to sing a song and I wanted it to be a song from the year that Angela Carter died, which off the top of my head, it's the late 80s, isn't it? Um, and I wanted to bring us up to um, modern times and I chose Wake Me Up Before You Go Go and we learned the most beautiful a cappella harmonies and it was perfect. It's all about dancing, it's all about jitterbugging, it's all about, oh, it was so perfect to sing to a baby and we didn't get the rights. And it broke my heart. And I truly believed that there could never be a song that would be as good, that that was the perfect choice. I couldn't, I couldn't accept it because I tend to get my own way in life. Um, but I had to accept it. The George Michael estate wouldn't let us use it. And that was when we did Girls Just Want to Have Fun, which then became the anthem. And really? I know. It did us a favour in the end. Well, I suppose so, although I'd still like to see the George Michael version as well. But I love Girls Just Want to Have a Fun. And in the end, it's a great um, lesson, isn't it? That there's always another choice and there's always another meaning and that there's always another chapter. But you're right. Ian Ross created the most beautiful harmonies to this song. And for those of you who at some point have the pleasure of listening to that track, which I think you should turn into a fundraiser for wise children. <laughs> um, it's it's a very special piece of music, and Ian Ross is a genius. So before I let George Michael play us out, thank you for having tea and biscuits with me, or Gavi and biscuits with me, <laughs> Gavi and pistachios. Gavi. And I say thank you, thank you for being the cleverest, most considered, challenging, creative, and surprising performer I've worked with, and also for your sensational loyalty as a friend. It's a privilege to know you. I'm looking forward to stealing you back from your current important position and putting you back on stage, which is where, for my money, you should be. Nice, I love you, and I'll be there. You put the boom boom into my heart. You see, I'm a Into my brain, yeah, yeah. it goes to bang bang.
or connection you'd like to share on Tea and Biscuits, leave us a message on our phone line 0117 318 3846. That's 0117 318 3846. Keep checking our social media for details of our next show. Tea and Biscuits is part of Wise Children's Lockdown. Thanks for hanging out with us. Bye. <laughs>